calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, I'm Andrea Viscontis, and this is Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You might have heard neuroscientists talk about free will and how, well, the neuroscience shows that it doesn't exist. I've been really reluctant to talk about this topic or to really delve in it more deeply on this podcast because I feel that the implications of there not being free will are pretty dire for our society and that the last thing our society needs is science justifying bad behavior. But I couldn't resist the opportunity to read Robert Sapolsky's new book, Determined. Everything I've read from Robert Sapolsky has essentially changed the way I think about whatever it is that he's writing about. And this was an opportunity for me to test whether this ultimate conversation about free will could end up in a direction that, well, was more hopeful than hopeless. If you don't know Robert Sapolsky, he's been on our show before, um, when he wrote Behave, which was a New York Times bestselling book. He spent decades studying the social behavior of baboons and also decades studying how stress impacts the brain at Stanford. He's a professor of biology and neuroscience and neurosurgery. He's a former MacArthur genius and just all around really interesting guy. Robert Sapolsky, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Well, thanks for having me back. So I have to say that talking about free will is one of the subjects that makes me the most uncomfortable. (laughs) And um, I think it is a testament to how much I respect you and how many times you've not only changed my mind, but also made me feel okay about it, that I'm engaging in this conversation with you. (laughs) Okay. Well, if it helps, I'm at least as uncomfortable (laughs) about this subject by now, but thanks. Um, And so I think, you know, I actually want to spend the majority of the conversation talking about the second half of your book, uh, because to me, that's really where a lot of the novelty is, where 
I feel like your expertise over the last four decades of working in this area can really help us inform how science can shape society and, and for the better, which is something on this podcast we're really interested in. But of course, before we get there, we have to get through some definitions. Um, you know, we got to know what we're talking about here. So let's start with free will. Uh, what is it that you mean by free will? And what would be the proof that you would seek to be convinced that it exists? Okay, well, nothing like a simple question. Um, for starters, rather than being one of those neuroscientists who think there's a lot less free will than is generally assumed to be the case, um, my lunatic fringe stance is that we have no free will whatsoever, which puts me way, way out on the normal distribution of scientists thinking about this stuff, but I am very convinced of it. Okay, so starting, what do I mean by free will? Uh, probably a good place to start is what I don't mean by it, uh, which is worth doing because it's the intuitive definition that most people go with, which is something that is very proximal, something very focused in the, in the moment. And I think like the best place to appreciate this is in a court with you got a defender there and essentially a trial revolves around three questions supposedly related to free will number one did the person intend to do what they did second did they understand what the consequences were likely to be and third did they understand that they had an alternative available to them and if the answer to those are yes basically by virtually every prosecutor, jury, etc., we have just shown the person had responsibility for their action and needs to be held culpable for it. And my general stance is that this gives me apoplexy because this makes no sense whatsoever and shows where people wind up getting mired in this mythological sense of free will, which is asking those questions and concluding the person had intent, understood consequences, knew they had alternatives, is like reviewing a book based on only reading the last three pages of it. You have missed virtually everything that's been going on. And what do I mean by that? It's because the courtroom and all sorts of neuroscientists to go about trying to formally study free will, that sort of thing. All of them have hit a major wall if that's as far as they've gone to, because they're not asking a critical question, which is, oh yeah, where did that intent come from in the first place? Whether the person intended that intent in that moment, etc., is such a tiny sliver of the story. And most of the answer to, and where did that intent come from, is stuff we weren't even aware of, stuff that happened before we were born, stuff top to bottom over which we had no control. And when you really unpack where did that intent come from, what you see is there's absolutely no room for volition in there. Yeah, I mean... Except that then I don't know what to teach my child, who I know I damaged in the womb because I was super stressed <laughs> in my third trimester. And as we neuroscientists know, that's very bad for the development of a prefrontal cortex later on in life. So I've essentially created a, you know, a, a very challenging situation for him. Um, and yet I still keep trying to teach him the difference between right and wrong. Like, yes. 
for <laughs> well good i'm i'm glad he's got you as a mother but what we see here is in some circumstances uh telling people that there's free will telling people they can choose to change their behavior that they can choose to take the harder path at junctures where that happens to be the tougher thing to do um that's instrumentally useful like that is perfectly capable of motivating behavior and that speaks to one of the sort of things that people instantly panic about when you start with the no there's no free will they say oh so are you saying nothing can change everything is set in stone and anything but that and all you have to do is like study 90 year old brains making new synaptic connections in response to experience plasticity of all sorts and what you see is our brains our cells our behaviors our values our cultures our implicit values and all of that can be can change dramatically the critical thing though in orienting towards that is we do not choose to change at that point we are changed by circumstance and prior circumstances over which we had no control influenced how likely we were to wind up in this particular circumstance and circumstances before that all the way down we do not choose to be changed but we are dramatically changed and changeable by the circumstances that circumstance have put us in and i guess that kind of gets to i think what you mean also by determinism where there is this series of, you know, you use the um, analogy of turtles all the way down. So, you know, there's this, this, this story. Well, I mean, you can tell us the story and maybe, and, and is that, is that right? In that, that we're, that's sort of what the core is of this determinist idea that there are. Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Okay. So literally tell the tur turtle story. Um, yeah, I think I think Turtles. otherwise we're going to keep okay. bringing it up. And <laughs> I, oh, good! I love this. I, I for fifty years I've been finding every excuse. Okay, so it seems that William James was giving a lecture about the nature of the universe, and afterward, this old woman came up and said, "Professor James, you have it all wrong. The world is actually on the back of a gigantic turtle." And James is bemused and says, "Okay, madam, but where does that turtle stand?" And she said, on the back of another turtle. And he said, but madam, where does that turtle stand? And she said, it's no use, Professor James's turtles all the way down. Why did this just happen? Because of what came before. Why did what came before happen? Because of what came before that. And the basic premise of the book is, if it sounds ridiculous to try to make sense of this moment by having to follow through the turtles all the way down, it's a whole lot more ridiculous to say somewhere down there there's a turtle that could float in the air. That was a causeless cause. And translating that into sort of the nuts and bolts science, like somebody does a behavior, it's wonderful, it's awful, it's in between, whatever, and you say, why'd they do that? And what you're asking is, what neurons did this or that in the previous tenth of a second? But you're also asking, what does the fact that the person right now is terrified, happy, tired, hungry, stressed, whatever, have to do with the functioning of those neurons? And you're also asking, what do that person's hormone levels this morning have to do with making this or that part of the brain more or less sensitive to this or that 
uh, sort of ongoing state. And then before you know it, you're trying to figure out if the person's been traumatized in the last year or found love or found God or what, because that's going to change the very structure of your brain and not in subtle ways. And then you're back to adolescence and childhood and fetal life where fetal environment, mostly derived by what's going on in mom's bloodstream, is incredibly influential on what kind of brain you're going to have 60 years later. And then, of course, back to genes. But then even crazier stuff like what sort of culture did your ancestors invent? And parentheses, what sort of ecosystems make that sort of culture more likely to have de developed? Why is that important? Because that's going to have influenced how your mom was raising you within minutes of birth. And then somewhere in there, you have to ask why we evolved as a species that's like more polygamous than marmosets, but less polygamous than baboons or something. And why did that behavior occur? Because of what happened a second before and a minute before and a thousand years before and all of that. And what strikes me as the most important thing about that is, okay, at first pass, sort of the neuroscientist explained, you know, what happened one second before. And you say, well, that's great. And why there's no free will. And you say, that's great. But what about this? You can't prove this. You can't explain that. So there's a hole in your argument. And then the endocrinologists step in and say, well, you know, we can actually plug up that hole with this explanation. But And they say, but you can't explain this other thing. And what seems to be the strategy I'm going after is not it at all. It's not that, ooh, if you take into account enough of these different disciplines, you're going to plug up the hole that each one of them implicitly has. Instead, it's all the same discipline. If you're talking about genes, by definition, you're talking about their evolution. If you're talking about genes, by definition, you're talking about environment and its epigenetic effects and gene regulation. And you're talking about the proteins you made in your brain this morning and everything. There's one like seamless arc of influences there. And for my money, when you look at it, there's not a damn crack anywhere in that process in which you can shoehorn a free will that relies on magic. You know, when you, at the beginning of your book, you describe the different types of people who kind of fall along these categories of, you know, those who are deterministic and believe there is no free will, which is you, <laughs> And then people who, you know, believe there's no determinism and no free will and people who believe there's no determinism, but there is free will. I don't understand either of those cases, but I'm in that 90% majority, I think, that you describe as compatibilists who, who believe in the determinism or understand that that is the case. That's how the world is. And yet we still, I would say, a belief or a hope that there is free will, that I am, I have some agency, that there, I have some power to shape my environment. And the way that I think about this is I understand that at any given moment, I, my actions are the product of all the things that have happened, but maybe somehow in the future, I can set up an environment in which my brain is changed in such a way that I can, you know, accomplish a particular goal. And the, and the, and the, the, the thing that I use here is like uh, musical training. So yes, I have a certain amount of, you know, genetic propensity towards it. I have, you know, certain bone structure in my face that I'm a singer, you know, allows for a kind of resonance. But if I practice every day, 
in the future, I might be able to do something that I cannot do now. And that's what keeps me going. So how do you, how would you, how, like, how do you think about sort of our potential for making these changes in our environment that might lead to a potentially different brain, but in a volitional way? Okay, great. By the way, one of my favorite gene environment interactions is genetic predisposition towards perfect pitch, but you need to be exposed to music in your first 10 years of life, which infuriates me because I'm a musician, have no perfect pitch, and have always been envious. And sort of thus, there we see lack of free will. But in any case, in your example, so you've lucked out through no doing of your own. You've got the right facial structure. You've got the right velvety peach fuzz on your larynx or whatever it is that gives you a good voice. And you're sitting there at some early stage in your potential singing trajectory, and you have those attributes. And somebody else does, has the exact same thing, and neither of you had any control over that. Okay, okay, so everybody at that point is willing to say, we're not looking at free will here. We're looking at what your natural attributes are, things you've been gifted with, things you've been cursed with, things you had no control over. So, okay, you have this lovely voice that could potentially be a whole lot more. And what you proceed to do is you practice, you study music. You listen to all sorts of different types of music. You develop tastes. You realize how to sing without like getting polyps. And, you're, and the person sitting next to you um, with the exact same whatever says, eh, music's boring. So you have to say, why did you wind up being somebody who valued music and they didn't? You didn't choose something in your upbringing. What was mom playing when you were a fetus, like resonating in her diaphragm or like obviously the entire world of like, why is it you valued music and the other person doesn't? Okay, once you valued music, somebody else could have valued music, the person next to you as well. Why is it that you had the means to then go and study music? Oh, socioeconomic status kind of stuff. Okay, why is it that at the same time you had the discipline to do it? Um, maybe they had the same SES as you, and you happened, starting in your fetal life with the help of some genes, develop the kind of frontal cortex that was going to let you deal with being frustrated as hell at getting something to get better and your 10,000 hours of Malcolm Gladwell practice. And the person next to you may have been just as intent and just as devoted to music and just as privileged with SES, but they happen not to have that tenacity through no choice of their own and through no choice of your own, and just on and on from there. Turtles um, all the way down. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but okay, so then what about this idea of emergence? And um, you know, a lot of a lot of people talk about consciousness as an emergent property of you know our eighty six billion neurons and how they all interact with each other. Um, and sometimes then I've heard neuroscientists say, okay, well then free will is an emergent property of you know that we don't quite understand yet, but it's there. How do you think about? the either the possibility of emergence or is that do you see even there more proof that in fact there isn't free will the latter big surprise okay i i devote six really sloshing through the trenches chapters in the book to three domains that 
are totally cool and revolutionary and which utterly tempt all sorts of folks to run wild with notions of free will and you can't find it there. First one is chaoticism. Chaoticism, unpredictable chaoticism and Mandelbrot sets and all of that stuff. And like the, the whole revolution in that was recognizing that some things are chaotic. They are intrinsically unpredictable. It is mathematically provable that they are unpredictable. It is all versions of the three-body problem of planets rotating around each other. And what was the most revolutionary thing about that is chaoticism kind of explains what's going on in molecules and cells and brains and people and society and this is this whole science of showing why complicated stuff cannot be predicted falling back on the ever useful term because of butterfly effects and things of that sort that's great at that point all sorts of people including some of the founders of chaos theory who should have known better said aha this is where we get free will from it's obvious because look this stuff is unpredictable and here's where they make their fatal mistake. They decide that unpredictable is the same thing as undetermined. Chaotic systems are unpredictable, and they are by nature so. Nonetheless, they are totally deterministic. They are just as deterministic as anything out there which is predictable. You can't find free will there. Okay, continuing my rant, the second area is the one that you brought up, emergent complexity. It's the best. I love it. I like torture my students with it. It's this basic idea that like you put one ant on a table and watch it and it makes no sense whatsoever. And you put 10 ants in the same thing and you put a hundred and I don't know, maybe they like all cluster around the one piece of bread there or something, but you put 10,000 of them together and they build these complex societies and then ant colonies that can regulate temperature and they have stratified roles and all that stuff. And every single ant in there starting with the one by itself, has no more than a couple of simple rules as to how it interacts with its neighbors. And throw enough of them together with enough quantity, you invent quality, and out pops ant amazingness. And then they can do stuff like they could get 99% of the way to solving the traveling salesman problem, which mathematicians haven't been able to do for centuries, in figuring out how can we go from all the different food sources around our nest and not get our legs tired from walking more than we have to? What's the most efficient possible route? And you see these emergent algorithms for how they do it these idiotic, simplistic ads for healthy. And then you look at the nervous system and the cortex and its wiring is 99% of the way towards solving the traveling salesman problem in terms of spending the least amount of axons on wiring things up. And they do it in the exact same way ants do. This is totally amazing on all these other emergent things. And it's the greatest and then, of course, there's the temptation to say, aha, you can't show me free will in a neuron, but you can show me free will emerging from a gazillion neurons as an emergent trait. Emergent in the sense of this is like, I, I find this the most vivid example of how to think about emergence. A molecule of water does not feel wet. The wetness of water is an emergent property. 
that only emerges when you get a whole lot of those water molecules. Okay, so they're now saying free will. Free will is an immersion property. Of course, you can't show it in a neuron. It's, it's non-linearly coming out from that. But you look closely at what all the models require, which is once there's a whole bunch of those elements in there and out pops something amazing, it's because those single elements have started working differently. They got smarter. They started doing things that they couldn't do when they were one molecule at a time or one ant at a time or one neuron. And that's like saying, okay, okay, a molecule of water is water because it's got two, two hydrogens and one oxygen. But if you can get a whole bunch of waters to turn themselves into two oxygens and one hydrogen, that's where you get wetness from. The basic building blocks have to change. And what changed it, you, you volitional you up on top, are able to reach down and get those basic building parts to work differently. And suddenly, the individual ants are smarter than they were, and your neurons can do things, the things made out of animate stuff. Can, and every single model requires an ability to reach down from this emergent upper level and somehow mess with the component parts and make them smarter. And the key thing that makes emergence so amazing is the individual components are just as stupidly simplistic when they're making an ant colony or you're like doing calculus with your cortex, the whole point is they still are just as simple. And there's no model for how you could pull free will out of emergence that doesn't require you that something magical happens to the component parts. And suddenly they can do stuff collectively that can't be explained by like the physical universe. The third one is one that I touch on only briefly because I don't understand it and it terrifies me, but quantum indeterminacy and the fact that it looks like most physicists agree that something really weird happens down at that level and determinism breaks down and even though there's some that are still fighting to their graves like Einstein did, um, but something like that happens and all you have to do is multiply those indeterminate effects 23 well 10 times to the 23 zeroth time and have every single one of those subatomic particles be doing that random thing in the same 10 to the 23rd zeros direction all at the same time and out of that can pop you and your individuality and your free will and this is gibberish because it can't percolate upwards 23 orders of magnitude. And it's gibberish because if it really could, all you'd be doing is randomness. Rand this is not how you come up with the moral values you have had since you were a child that you were willing to kill or die for. That's, it's where randomness would come from or any model that makes it possible for your upness at the upper level to reach down and mess with the quantum determinacy and do it in a way so that it's not random requires magic. It's the same reaching down from above and making ants suddenly trilingual and reaching down from above and getting all the little electrons to do the exact same thing at the same time and have that produce a moral philosophy. None of those work, even though they're totally cool. I, I get the nearest thing I ever get to like religious, like transcendence when thinking about how 
emergence explains where the complicated, totally adaptive stuff comes from, and you don't have to have a blueprint. And if you don't need a blueprint, you don't need a blueprint maker. And that's great. But none of these are ways in which you get free will because all of them require assumptions that don't work that way. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, you know, I have to admit that I, after reading your book, am, am pretty solidly in your camp, and I'm very reluctantly leaving the compatibilist camp. And the reason that I'm reluctant is some of the same reasons why I was reluctant when I stopped believing in an afterlife, because there's, it's so comforting when you're faced with suffering and loss to think that you're going to be reunited in some other existence, some other plane. And sometimes I feel like I'm causing myself more suffering by insisting on belief, you know, on the belief that it doesn't exist or preventing myself from, from, but I, but you know, uh, I can't because of course I have no free will either. So, <laughs> so should, so, so this, this is the question here. And, and in fact, you, you, uh, you quote a, a, an article by Stephen Cave, I think at the Atlantic, which is just like, aren't we just better off believing that we have free will as a society? And how do you sleep at night? <laughs> You know, thinking about, you know, the, the potential damage that you could do to society by convincing us all that, in fact, you are right. Well, not surprisingly, I think it would actually be a great thing, even though I spent four and a half of the five years writing this book, uh, not convinced of that and thinking that at the end, I was just going to have to say, tough, this is how the world works, suck it up. Um, but the problem with the book is that virtually anyone who is going to read it 
and anyone who would listen to this and anyone in that broad category is someone for whom the notion that there's no free will is going to be totally upsetting and depressing and malaise and existential despair for the very simple reason that when people think about, oh my God, what's panicking about there being no free will? Oh, we're going to have murderers running around the street. Someone who would be reading this book or listening to this, etc., what they're really thinking if they face the possibility that there's no free will is maybe I didn't earn it when somebody congratulates me on my prestigious college degree. Maybe I didn't earn my much higher than average salary or my corner office or my knowledge that I can get health care and cut in the front of the line because of my placement in society that most people can't and all of that. For most people like that, the notion that there's no free will is a total bummer because it says you aren't actually entitled to the good stuff you've been getting. But the trouble is that the vast majority of humans are not going to be the folks reading this book or listening to a podcast like this. And for them, what the absence of free will mostly means is it's not their fault for the things they get blamed for in life, that the things they've gotten punished for, the reasons why it seemed to be moral to ignore them, to neglect them, all of that. In a world in which we're constantly, you know, rewarding people and punishing people for things they had no control over, most of the time, it's the punishing. Most of the time, it's saying, well, you didn't work hard enough. Most of the time, it's, well, you weren't self-disciplined enough. You weren't whatever. You, you could have, you could have, when in fact, you couldn't have. And most of the time, rejecting a notion that there's free will is liberating. It's the greatest thing out there. And we've been knowing that for centuries. It's the greatest thing out there when we figured out that, like, tornadoes are not caused by the old woman at the edge of the village who lives alone and has no teeth. There really aren't witches. And she didn't cause it. That's not how it works. She didn't have. And it's a better planet when we stopped burning old women with no family and no teeth when there was a hailstorm. The world became more humane. And with every step along the way, when we figured out, oh, that's not actually their doing. Yeah, that's a bummer for a few people where we said, oh, my God, you did such a wonderful job at that. You're such a great human. But for most people, it's, yeah, they had no control over this. And this is society predicated on the notion that they did, that they had more than they actually did. And whether it's burning people at the stake or figuring out, wow, I've, my, I and my family have a screwy version of a gene that codes for the receptor for this hormone called leptin. And as a result, there's no way in hell I was not going to be morbidly obese. And it has nothing to do with my self-discipline. It has nothing to do with whether I love myself or not and any crap like that. And it has nothing to do when trying to make sense of society stigmatizing people for things like that and that being one of those implicit biases in society that has been getting worse over the decades rather than better like implicit biases about things like race or facial symmetry or stuff whoa you mean people who are vastly overweight and have spent their whole life trying to do something about it this was due to a gene variant they had 
And that particular gene variant explains probably about 40% of the cases of morbid obesity. And as a result, they have spent their life less likely to get certain jobs, less likely to have friends, less likely to be loved, less because of the stupid goddamn gene variant, they are more likely to be lonely their entire life. And somehow on top of that, there's this icing of false attribution put on of saying, what can I say? They weren't, they always indulged at every juncture where they could have said, nah, I won't. Every time they fought, what can I say? Some people have more self-discipline than others. No, someone wound up with that gene variant and somebody else didn't. And that's where that difference comes from. And just like it's a more humane society that we're not burning old ladies at the stake, it's a more humane society when all sorts of ways in which you wind up being one of society's less desirables are recognized as having nothing to do with like anything you did. There was no free will. I mean, one of the things that worries me about this is then how do we how do we motivate people to do things that are that require some kind of sacrifice, you know, physical, financial, what have you. And you know, the the we understand you and I at least and and a lot of our listeners understand that that dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is about anticipating a reward. It's the thing that like keeps you moving towards a goal. And um if all of a sudden, and I, I understand like, okay, so that's part of the whole deterministic view, but some of the tools that we use to motivate our kids to learn to suffer through something <laughs> is about creating this like dopaminergic, you know, pathway that allows them to keep doing the painful thing for that goal further out. And, and that's one of the things I have a hard time reconciling. Like if we as a society kind of begin to accept this idea of no free will, and, and punishment and reward even uh, seem immoral, how do we make sure that we still behave in a pro-social manner as opposed to just in a very selfish manner? Well, it's totally straightforward. And as a result, I'm capable of thinking that way maybe one-tenth of one percent of the time because none of this, I, I'm like a hypocrite almost constantly in terms of how I view the world around me because it's incredibly hard to like not get pissed off at people or to not feel pleased if someone says you did a good job at something. Um, but where do we deal with the issue of motivation? I mean, one level is, you know, even in a world in which there is no such thing as retribution, where there's no such thing as punishment for its own sake, where punishment is never a virtue in and of itself, sometimes you got to bop people over the head in order to shape their future behavior in the exact same way that you could shape the future behavior of some like sea slug by like giving a mild shock to its tail every now and, and its behavior will change you've gotten its behavior to change with something aversive and every now and then it's clearly going to be the case that like something aversive will have a good instrumental result and then immediately you can argue whether that should be for the good of everyone or the good of the individual and off you're running with that sort of stuff. But instrumental use of adverse consequences shapes behavior and things are different in the future. And in the exact same way, even if we get past the point of saying, wow, if you could be a neurosurgeon and be competent at it, 
you're a better human than most of those other people out there that you drive past in your Tesla every day. Um, even if we get a world in which praise is no longer viewed as a virtue in and of itself, it's again, it's a good instrument. And a great example of that is, I, I bet if you're anywhere neurotic of a parent as my wife and I are, you at some point came past that like thing that your kid does something great at school. Don't say to them, wow, you must be so smart. Say to them, wow, you must have worked so hard because those have different instrumental effects on future behavior. In both cases, you're choosing one over the other because you know if you say you must say, be so smart, the kid is less likely to work hard in the future. Whereas if you say, wow, you must have worked so hard, they're, they're much more likely and that's great. And you know, Calvinist backbone and Horatio Alger and bootstraps and all of that. And you have used not just praise, but in this case, a scientifically informed better type of praise to shape subsequent behavior. And if as a result of you having said, wow, you must have worked so hard there, that's great. They've just made four and a half more synapses, some part in the brain that values self-efficacy. And thus, they're more likely to do it again in the future. So it's absolutely great to do that. But don't think that the person deserved the punishment or the praise as a moral good and that you are operating out of virtues that transcend what you want out of this interaction itself, because that's not how it works. And I think it's I think it's really interesting too that you use the term self-efficacy because I think for for a lot of people who um, are reluctant to give up this view of free will, it's because it it collides with this sense of self-efficacy and self-actualization as being something that we should strive for. So, can how do you reconcile the absence of free will with this motivating need for? you know, the self-actualization or, or sort of becoming your, your, your best self, if indeed <laughs> we don't, you know, the <laughs> self doesn't even really exist. Right? Well, once again, um, that's a problem for privileged people like you and me, because we have to reflect on our past of what made us work that hard. And why did we pass up all those parties when their roommate was doing so and studying instead or whatever version of how we wound up this laudable way that we wound up being by this particular metric. Like, okay, how can we get us to do more of that? That's going to be hard. That's going to have to require some sort of version of you're not a bad person, but you did a bad thing. But the opposite, you're not an intrinsically more worthwhile human than anyone else. But Damn, you're a good neurosurgeon. That's amazing how you do, not because you earned it, but we all need to recognize that out of your, I had no control over it, movements of your fingers, you did amazing stuff. And in much the same way, you did a bad thing, but you're not a bad person, is a grounds for the right kind of motivation. Maybe there's some hope there. Okay, but that's mostly, ooh, let's, yeah, you really think that's going to work. Nonetheless, for most people, the problem isn't, are you allowed to praise them that they put in 47 years of work to become an amazing neurosurgeon? The problem is that you're trying to explain to them that it's not their fault that their 
less gifted than average or less wealthy than average or less beautiful than average or less whatever. And because it's a society that runs on myths that they could have done otherwise. So yeah, I, it's absolutely going to be a difficult problem to get crazy over the top overachievers to continue doing so if a big part of it was they really, really need to be patted on the head. And the reality is that explains a huge percentage of like folks like that. Um, but for most people on this planet, that's not the problem. The problem is going to be to liberate them from societal myths that they could have been otherwise. And how they wound up is some version of society's have-nots, and their life has been sadder as a result of that. So I want to remind our listeners um, that Robert Sapolsky's book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I I have to say that the reason that I was have been you know been so reluctant to address this issue is because I often see the people who are the strongest intellectual leaders in here to be sort of borrowing your words privileged white you know male <laughs> in that in our society and I worry that we are repeating some history a very ugly history of um, biological determinism that led to a lot of racist and other discriminatory practices but one of the things that I've loved not only in my conversation today with you but also in the book is how what you're the conclusions that you're coming to are the exact opposite <laughs> of that yeah. Um, and so I just want to underscore that and to, you know, to to thank you uh, for making that very clear to me, at least, um, and, and making it less scary for me to engage in this in this topic. And I, I just want to, you know, ask one more to clarify one more thing that I, I heard you say this in another podcast in it. And it was really heartwarming that as a primate, it's better to be the groomer than to be the one who is groomed. <laughs> So tell us about the sort of biology of that and how that maybe leads us towards a society that is more pro-social. It's our only hope, um, writ large and complexly. Um, it's part of what I've spent my years doing is studying baboons in the wild in East Africa and like social grooming. It's a bad day. Everybody grooms each other. A lion almost kills one of you. Everyone grooms afterward. It's like, it's it's social gossip. It's the equivalent. It's totally calming. It's great and all of that. And thus the question became, could you show that on a level of like baboons, once they groom, once they're involved in grooming bouts with some other baboon, do their stress hormone levels go down, their levels of cortisol? And like that was one of the things I found. And yeah, wow, grooming lowers stress hormone levels and very, very far down the line, thus it's good for your health, blah, blah. But let's let's unpack that a bit. How much time is being spent with that guy being groomed? versus grooming someone else. And then let's keep track of the hormone levels. And it turns out how often they are grooming someone else is a better predictor of how much cortisol drops than how much they are being groomed. Oh my God, this is like Hallmark cards, like go out and groom someone today randomly with an active baboon grooming or sort of thing, because that makes you feel better. 
you know, all sorts of studies show that people habituate to unexpected rewards way, way faster than anybody thinks. And people derive satisfaction, and God help me saying such a nebulous word, meaning out of helping other people. And forgiveness does great things for people's immune systems and all sorts of things of that sort. And you do all sorts of these like great studies. Here's $20. Go into this store and spend it on yourself, says the researcher. Here's $20. Go in and spend it on some friend. Or here, go in and spend it on some, like they have a, a charitable contribution box there in the corner. And then six hours later, looking at things like how people self-rate their, their mood at that point and like doing for somebody else really does wonders. And in a sense, one of the greatest sort of ways in which sociality works as an antidepressant, and it sure as hell does, is amid a disease that makes you feel hopeless and helpless, the knowledge that somebody is doing better because of you. Somebody's well-being is dependent on you functioning. You matter. And like the finding that you matter is like a major neurobiological good thing. Yeah. Like amid all of our cynicism and living well is the best revenge and look out for number one, I, this is actually a fairly widespread like piece of our primate wiring there. Um, and in that regard, I'm, I'm very glad you, you honed in on the point before that, because insofar as this book is like, God help us about neurochemistry and genes and all this science stuff that everyone decided they hated in ninth grade and where I've tried to work very, very, very hard to make the book accessible to even people who hated science all along. Um, ultimately, in this like totally roundabout way, it's a book about social justice. Yeah, and and it, and it reads that way. And I, I love this, 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 this kind of conclusion that one of the driving forces that make us better is the, the is feeling that we matter and we matter by helping others. Um, just don't think it was your choice. <laughs> don't don't yeah. be an illusion that you freely chose that because, of course, it is a place of privilege from which you can yeah. help others. And don't feel like you earned the praise you get afterward. Well, Robert Sapolsky, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. This is really fun. Well, thanks for having me on. This was a blast. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank our longtime supporters, David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rehala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.